I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Episode 23, it's actually been a barn burner of a week. Uh, for you personally? No, no, just in general. I feel like a lot has happened. Uh, we have a great episode coming. Well, that's true. Yeah. Don't take our word for it. Listen to the whole episode. <laughs> you can't tell it because it's radio, but I am winking at you, the listener. Um, all right. So jumping right into it, David, mm-hmm. have you ever felt like you have a chant? And this chant represents some pretty horrible things. And uh, you lost me. <laughs> just, just bear with me. So you have this chant that represents horrible things, horrible nationalism, xenophobia. And you're like, I kind of want to make this more racist. Uh this was breaking news last week, but some Trump fellow supporter person was screaming USA at, oh, yeah, at a yeah, protest yeah. that seemed yeah. to get picked up by absolutely everyone. Yeah, it was actually formally condemned by the campaign, right? Yes, one Kellyanne Conway, the spokesperson and or manager, I'm not exactly sure, she called him a deplorable. Did you read his explanation of why he was doing it? I know nothing about it. I just got a bunch of text messages from people with a lettering Jew, period S, period A, and had no idea what anyone was texting me about. Yeah, it took me a while to figure out what that meant. But after the campaign condemned him, he told all the people interviewing him that he was pronouncing the U with what he described as a Latino accent. No, you're kidding. He said he was doing it to show solidarity with Mexicans. So he managed to make it another step more racist. Third register. Yeah. um, Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so it it was the uh, three degrees of more racist. Uh, But what else happened this week that made it a barn burner, Sam? To be honest, I've just been reeling since you made your daredevil revelation. Oh, yeah, actually. And (laughs) for listeners who can't see me, I'm rolling my eyes. Um, So I think I'll just give a preemptive anti-Skoyak to the writers of the last episode of Daredevil Season 2 on Netflix for not responding to any of my tweets, uh, (laughs) in which I was requesting clarification about whether or not the Marvel Cinematic Universe interpretation of the character Elektra Nachios is actually a Greek Jew, considering that she was buried in a Jewish cemetery in the show. Or just a general casting oversight. Yeah, I mean, I mean, further anti-Skoyach as always to Frank Miller, a racist piece of garbage who, uh, unfortunately, a lot of that season's storyline was based off of and had racist misunderstandings of parts of Japanese history. Well, there you have it, David's comic book corner. And if you're hungry for more, you can always follow me on Twitter. Huh. Uh, something that I want to bring up is actually to thank all of our listeners for giving us such uh, generous iTunes reviews. I still don't think it has affected the general iTunes ratings, but it has made us both feel good. But I wanted to actually address one specific review. Someone wrote this very detailed review, and, and something that they took issue with was that we changed our music. We've started using music made by uh, SoCalled or Josh Dolgan to have more sort of like an organic transition between segments, whereas before we we're using music that was more similar to our intro by Sax Syndrome. First of all, I'd like to appreciate your diligence, anonymous iTunes poster. Second of all, I believe you may have inadvertently affirmed my point that it is important to inform the listeners of changes that we're making. (laughs) The show has sort of gradually transitioned uh, from the first year to the second year from being more of a more of a news commentary podcast to being more of an interview and discussion podcast. And so uh, that's also changed the way the show is edited and the way the show works. And so the new music is, is just part of that. Yeah, no, it's reflective of change. Change is good, but it's always good to tell people why you're changing things and when you're changing things. Uh, But for uh, people who are missing the old music, just keep your ears perked and perhaps uh, you will like what you hear at some point in this episode. Uh, But who do we have on the show today, Sam? 
we have one Brant Rosen of Tzedek Chicago, who is a rabbi and an activist and a great talker as well. We, we had him on to talk about Tzedek Chicago, which is what they describe as a non-Zionist shul or synagogue in Chicago, and, and some of the controversy that's come with creating that space and what it actually looks like on, on a day-to-day basis. I got nothing else to add. Stay tuned for the interview. And our regular Shkoyach segment. So this is your episode of Trafe for the 8th of Cheshvan, My name is Brant Rosen. Uh, I'm originally from Los Angeles, but live in the Chicago area in Evanston. I've been here since 1998. Uh, I've been a congregational rabbi for over 20 years, and most of that time was at a congregation in Evanston, Jewish Reconstructionist congregation, which I left at the end of 2014 and took a job at the American Friends Service Committee. And uh, several months after that, founded a new congregation called Chicago, which is an intentional values-based community that's based on certain core values that we share and has gathered some publicity because of some of the values. We're avowedly non-Zionist. We're anti-racist and universalist, and we can talk more about that, unpack what all that means. Uh, So that's uh, what I've been doing for the last two years or so. Well, I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. Can we start a little bit with talking about Cedric Chicago and kind of who comes on a regular basis and who came together to make it happen? Well, I, as I mentioned before, I was at a congregation in Evanston for about 17 years, Jewish Reconstructionist congregation. And uh, over that time, my own activism around Israel-Palestine evolved. Israel-Palestine has always been a very central and important area for me in terms of social activism and just in terms of my identification as a Jew. And little by little, I moved to a place where I would say I was, where I previously had been a liberal Zionist, moved more toward a Palestine solidarity position, not just calling into question the occupation, but really calling into question Zionism itself, the inherent problems of having an ethnically Jewish state. And as you can imagine, that uh, raised a little bit of dust in my congregation. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the turning point, the final turning point for me was 2000, at the end of 2008, Operation Cast led two military assaults ago now. For me, that, that was a, a breaking point. And I was very public about not only my opposition to the war, which I thought was an outrage, but that it was really just part of a much larger troubling issue about Zionism itself. This was not an isolated incident about Hamas lobbing rockets into Israel. This was about an, a basic injustice that occurred when Israel was founded. I became increasingly involved with Jewish Voice for Peace and started a, an effort called Jewish Fast for Gaza, eventually helped found the Jewish Voice for Peace Rabbinical Council. And during that time, as you can imagine, it created stress in my congregation Actually, could you, could you talk a bit about what the pushback looked like at that time? Right. So I had been blogging for several years before, and my blog started 
as you know, kind of a happy rabbi's blog where I just posted things that I thought were interesting. This was the pre-Facebook era, but it eventually became more straight ahead, social justice and, and politically oriented. And it was really a, a primary mouthpiece for me just to share my thoughts about what was going on in the world with a, with a particular emphasis on Israel-Palestine. So when Operation Cast Lead took place, I wrote very early on, really after the initial bombing of Gaza City, I wrote a very strong blog post where I really spoke out very frankly about what I, I felt was going on. And I, I said something like, you know, we liberal Jews are, are very good at condemning every human rights abuse in the world except for Israel. And it's a double standard. And I, I know it is because I've been guilty of promoting it and I'm not going to do it anymore. And at the end, I wrote, there, I've said it. Now, what do I do? You know, that, that last question was actually misinterpreted by some people. I think some people thought it was, well, maybe you should, you know, send out a petition. Maybe you should, you should march or go to a rally or, you know, and it really it was a much more basic existential question, which was, I was really breaking with what had been a central part of my own Jewish identity. And I wasn't really sure where to go with that. Um, I wasn't sure if I could be a rabbi anymore. I, I mean, it really was sort of a leap into the into the abyss. So, as you might imagine, I got a lot of emails. The board and the presidents of the congregation heard from congregants. So it it came from all sides. And early on, we realized that if I was going to continue this work, which I made it clear I intended to do, that this was a matter of my own conscience, and I wasn't going to muzzle myself or closet myself on a basic issue of conscience. We really worked hard to create an environment where all points of view on Israel were welcome, regardless of where the rabbi was politically. We brought in a consultant to help us learn how to have civil dialogue with one another. We trained people to do small group facilitations that we carried on for you know, well over two years. And we really, really worked hard at trying to, regardless of what the rabbi was doing in terms of his own personal activism, that the congregation was a place that was a wide tent for all positions on Israel, including non-Zionism, because we did have some members who, who did not identify as Zionists. I think I'm a little cautious, but I'm going to jump anyways into this question. Can you explain how you understand non-Zionism? Right. I'm just curious what that looks like yeah. for you exactly. Yeah. For Tzedek Chicago, we call ourselves non-Zionists for a specific reason. In some ways, we're a wide tent within the non-Zionist world. Uh, mm. When we say non-Zionist, we mean as a community, we're not Zionist. I have no trouble calling myself an anti-Zionist. You know, if, if one believes that a nationalistic system that privileges one group over another is racist, that there's something inherently racist about that, and you consider yourself an anti-racist, then I think you have to call yourself an anti-Zionist. So personally, I have no trouble with that label. But there are people in, our, in TEDx Chicago who would call themselves non-Zionist for other kinds of reasons. Maybe they just don't want Zionism to be at the center of their Jewish identity. And they prefer to define themselves as Jews, you know, writ large, without having to deal with the issue of Zionism. I think it's very problematic that Zionism has really kind of hijacked Judaism for the last century plus. I think Judaism was always a diasporic tradition that allowed Jews to be able to create community and find God wherever they happen to live. And making it a land-centric focus, I think, really subverted centuries of Jewish experience. Zionism was a radical, radical movement, and is in the Jewish world. It radically subverted what being Jewish had meant since in the beginning of rabbinic Judaism as we know it. 
Yeah. I just want you to build a little bit off the question of basing a Jewish identity not on Zionism. And mm-hmm. and this is something that me and David confronted in our organizing in, in Montreal as well, is that a lot of Jews who identify as anti-Zionist end up focusing all of their attention on anti-Zionism or their Palestine solidarity right. work. And, right. and, and you mentioned this in your last answer where you thought that people who don't want Zionism to be at the center of their Jewish identity, and we see that with the institutional community, but some of the older anti-Zionist Jews, not all of them, end up focusing so much on Zionism and their opposition to it. And it feels to a certain extent like some people that we know are trying to figure out what it means like to build this different Judaism that doesn't have Zionism in its root or or, or colonialism as kind of its like foundational ideology. And I just wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about that in terms of anti-Zionists or non-Zionists. Sure. I I think the reason I don't like to call myself an anti-Zionist is because it defines myself in opposition to something, and it still gives Zionism uh, pride of place. You know, you're still reacting to Zionism. You're still making Zionism the central issue. And the challenge for us, as you put it really well, is we, we don't want to create a movement where all we are is what we are against. I think it's very, very important for us to uh, be able to state up front what is the kind of Judaism that we want to promote. If, if we're not going to center Zionism in our Judaism, then what are we going to put at the center? And I think that's an absolutely essential question. What I, I, I'm trying to promote, and I think many people relate to one way or another, is reclaiming diasporic Judaism, really understanding that the diaspora is the place in which Judaism was incubated and lived for thousands of years, and it allowed Judaism survive for thousands of years. If, if there was no diaspora, there would have been no Judaism. After the destruction of the temple, if rabbinic Judaism was not able to constitute itself in such a way that it could live anywhere in the world, then Judaism, as we know, it would have ceased to exist. So the diaspora, meaning not necessarily this horrible, dark place of oppression and exile, but rather this fertile ground in which Jewish community and creativity and spirituality can grow, I think is what, where we want to put back in the center, but in a, in a more mindful way. And, and I think that's very exciting to explore what that might look like. So moving a bit from the flack and the, the feedback that you got in the past for coming out with this perspective on, on Palestine, uh, recently in the forward, I know that um, there was an article that Mira Sukhrov wrote, who comes from more of a liberal Zionist perspective that was criticizing Tzedek Chicago and the existence of an intentional non-Zionist space there was a response from another member of Tzedek Chicago, but I was wondering if you want to talk a bit about uh, how this back and forth went down. Sure. So uh, Mira read my Rosh Hashanah sermon and uh, used that as a jumping off point in her article in the foreword to raise a question. And the question was, this concept of a non-Zionist congregation, while she understood the need for the congregation, she was basically asking out loud in the article, is it problematic because it means we're segregating ourselves from a part of the community that needs to hear our message? And she put it, we're hiding off from the, you know, the liberal Zionist community to create our own spaces. As, as she put it, we need to find a way to bridge that divide. And she ended her article with justice depends on that. And there was a response to Mira's article from Jay Stanton, who's a first-year rabbinical student, rabbinical intern at SEDEC Chicago. And what Jay wrote in his article, which was a point that I agree with, was that we're not hiving off from mainstream congregations. We have been rejected by them. Just about 
every congregation, every liberal congregation in the country is Zionist. It is very, very difficult to be uh, a non-Zionist or an anti-Zionist and feel that you have a place in these congregations. Either you have to shut up and keep your ideas and your beliefs to yourself, or you're actively branded a self-hating Jew or even an anti-Semite. So it's, I think Mira's article misunderstands the power dynamic that's going on here, in that the, the mainstream Jewish community is overwhelmingly Zionist. And for Jews who do not share that Zionist focus, if they want to be their authentic selves, they need spaces where they can do that, not unlike LGBTQ synagogues that arose in the 70s and the 80s for a very similar reason. People wanted safe space. So we have this portion of our radio show where we give a shkoyach at the end of every episode to something or someone who kind of did something that we think is important or we have an anti-shkoyach for the opposite. <laughs> and I read Jay's article a few days ago to prepare for this interview, and there, it, like that really feels like it's an article that deserves a shkoyach of a certain kind. Um, there was a sentence that stood out where Jay wrote, we're not avoiding Jewish communal spaces, we're creating them. Right. And it resonated with what you just said, because on the one hand, people are saying, you're only anti-Zionist, you're not creating something new. And then when you create, when you're trying to build something new, you're being critiqued for not being part of the institutional community, right? So it's, right. You're, like, right. your community ends up being put in this unfair position where whatever you do will not be acceptable. Right, and, and another point that, uh, and I, I appreciate that Shkoyach for Jay, and I know he'll appreciate it as well. Uh, and it's it's not unlike another phenomenon that occurs uh, vis-a-vis racism in this country. And, you know, well-meaning white liberal, uh, white liberal Americans will look to people of color and say, well, you know, help us, help us understand racism, help us understand what we're doing wrong. Uh, and how can we help us be your ally? And that place, they don't, while it's very well-meaning, it places a huge burden on people of color, the people who are, who are oppressed by this system, to be the ones who have to school the oppressors in coming to grips with the system. That's not a way toward justice. The white community in this country, America, white America, needs to put their own house in order. We have a lot of work to do in figuring this stuff out among ourselves. But to put people of color in the position of having to lead that for us as well as deal with the oppression that they live with every single day is hugely problematic. And I think it's in some ways very similar. I think Jay pointed that out in his article that, it's, you know, we can have these conversations and that's fine. But... Um, to a certain extent, I feel like I'm at a point where if, if people want to come over to where we are, that's great. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to convince them to do it, try to dissuade them from the path that they're on. I just want to create a spiritual home for myself uh, together with people who share my values, be out, out and proud about it. And if and when people want to come over to join us, they're absolutely welcome to do it. But I, in the meantime, I'm not going to spend a lot of time and energy uh, trying to convince people to do something they're just simply not ready to do and maybe never will be. Yeah. Um, I feel like, I feel like I just want to push back a little bit though on, on the, um, the analogy you're making with uh, racialized people in America, you know, being put in, mm-hmm. in a position of like there's an onus on them to explain what's going on to always mm-hmm. engage in perpetuity, always be in white spaces um, and be critiqued when they're not. Whereas like, I don't think it can equally be said that anti-Zionist Jews, you know, are the primary targets of Zionist oppression, right? Like, I feel like that analogy yeah. seems to, that it seems to be like more geared to like 
like Palestinians would be the people there, right? Of like constantly being asked right. to engage. So that's, and a fair, that's an absolutely fair point. Mm-hmm. I'm, I guess I'm looking at it within the microcosm of the Jewish community itself. Right. Uh, but you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, what we're talking about is systematic oppression against the Palestinian people. And it's not about us. It's really about dismantling the system that we've, we've bought into. There's no question. I was looking at the... Or was it the website? I don't even remember. Um, <laughs> so I noticed that there were some references to like Black Lives Matter and doing solidarity with migrant justice groups in the U.S. And I saw as well a reference to opposition to the pipeline in North Dakota. And mm-hmm. I was wondering how anti-colonialism, I mean, obviously it fits in, in what, like when we talk about it in North America, but like how has that occupied a place in Sedek Chicago um, I think it's so shocking sometimes to be in anti-Zionist Jewish spaces in North America that have no analysis of settler colonialism in North right. America. And I'm just right. wondering, like, have you confronted that and, and what does it look like and how does solidarity look for you and your organization? We're just getting started on trying to figure that out uh, in terms of what we do as a congregation. But the sermon I gave on Yom Kippur was about the Jewish establishment response to the Movement for Black Lives platform that came out this last summer. And... One of the things I suggested in the sermon is that the analysis that we apply when it comes to Israel-Palestine is just part of a larger anti-colonial analysis that we need to apply to our own country. For those of us who are white and Jewish, we need to reckon with both at the same time because they're part of the same system. And it's very complicated to unpack because I think many white Jews just assume that all Jews are white. And it ain't so. It never was. And we have Jews of color increasingly in the American Jewish community who are de-centered in Jewish conversations, in Jewish communities. And I think their voice is going to be very, very critical in trying to determine how we're going to create Jewish anti-colonial communities. So in the terms of the things that we take on, we're just getting started. We're still putting together a process by which we will figure out as a community the kinds of issues we want to take on and the kind of stands we're going to publicly take. So far, because many of our members are very active in the organizing community in Chicago, much of what we've done has been very local, in particular, solidarity with the educational justice movement in Chicago, with Chicago Teachers Union, which was, as of Rosh Hashanah, on the verge of going, going on strike, which they ended up not doing. But we did a Rosh Hashanah action in solidarity with the CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union. And we had a group of members who had gone on their own. They didn't go to set of Chicago to Standing Rock and came back and gave a report on their experiences to our community and absolutely making the linkage between their standing with indigenous peoples in North Dakota and the way we will go to the West Bank and stand with Palestinians in their, in their struggle. Mm. Before we let you go, though, and this might be putting you on the spot so we can, um, do you have any shkoyachs to give today for anyone or any group? It doesn't have to be Jewish specific. It's just things that you've seen in the last mm. couple of days that have been meaningful to you. Well, I want to give a huge shkoyach to the people at Standing Rock who are just beyond courageous as far as, as I'm concerned. The people for whom that's their home, but also the people who are going there to stand in solidarity with them. There was there's a virtual media blackout on what is one of the most significant moments, I think, in our country's modern history, that so many different nations are, are being convened 
in this territory to stand in solidarity with, uh, with Native people. And they're really, in many ways, putting their lives on the line. And it's going to get worse as winter sets in. So I just have nothing but incredible gratitude and admiration for, for their bravery and their courage. It reminds me a great deal of people, of uh, Palestinian colleagues and, and friends of mine who I visited this last summer in Hebron in the South Hebron Hills. It's this notion of taking a stand and saying, this is my home and you can't fuck with my home. <laughs> and no matter how much you try to fuck with us, we're not going to leave. We're going to stay here. That's worthy of a myriad of shikoyaks as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I think that's the best possible place we could uh, end the interview. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm always happy to talk about this work. It means a great deal to me. Again, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, sure. Thank you for reaching out. I appreciate it. Joe Nutley and Daniel here calling in from the Narrowbridge Candles Chandlery. Narrowbridge Candles is a Jewish ritual candle-making project in support of the full Palestinian call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel, sending a portion of the profits to the Stop the Jewish National Fund campaign. These 100% beeswax candles are made here in the Chandlery in Makamo, Southern Pomo Occupied Territory, Sonoma County, California. Go to the website narrowbridgecandles.org to place your Hanukkah order by Thursday, November 10th and receive a bonus small Havdalah candle as a thank you. Order by December 2nd to ensure receiving your candles in time for Hanukkah or to join a group order in 18 locations and counting. Narrowbridge Candles ships candles year-round all over the world, including candle subscriptions, gifts bundles, and gift certificates. Go to narrowbridgecandles.org for more information, and remember these make great gifts for anyone interested in ritual and justice. down your Jewish daily forward. Pick up your Freya Arbiter Steime. It's time for Shkayach. Shkayach! Shkayach. Shkayach. <laughs> for those who can't see it home, me and David just thumbs up one another. <laughs> Unprompted. Honestly, though, the I was doing some internet searches for some old articles in the forward and having to engage in a concentrated way with the endless five reasons that this thing that has nothing to do with Jewish people is Jewish or the Jewish philosophy of this random thing that has nothing to do with Jewishness was so frustrating. Like I reached critical mass of being able to engage with that. But there are some good people there. And I'm not just saying this to kind of save face with the four people who like us at the forward. But did you see Sam Kestenbaum's article about Dylan? I mean, I don't know if he did this intentionally or not, but it felt like there was a troll to a certain extent because... Uh, of be- their format of everything's Jewish. Yes, all right? I mean, like, he, he even referenced in the article, like, oh, the the forward had a previous article about how we're going to claim Dylan as a Jew and how he has this Yiddish soul, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's this extended piece about how Jews for Jesus also claim Dylan as their own. And again, I don't know if this was intentional, and it probably wasn't, but I felt like it was an interesting kind of juxtaposition with the 
top five Jewishnesses about the non-Jewish thing. Yeah, I mean, for people who do not read Jewish media and don't even know what the Jewish forward is, at least <laughs> once a week or something like, say there's a new Star Wars movie, it'll be like, the secret Jewish history of Star Wars, or yeah. there's like... And it, or like, what was that thing that they had in New York like four or five years ago? Those like scone pastry, what were they? It was like a croissant, a donut, a cronut. A cronut. It would be like the seven most Jewish things about the cronut. Like they're just it's just click, riddled. It's just clickbait. There's nothing there. Like if you actually read through the articles, it'll be like, oh, that person knew someone Jewish once or... Or like their mother was Jewish. Yeah, like it's just complete and utter garbage. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, like maybe that pays the bills. But as someone who reads Jewish media, it's the worst. I don't even know why we're talking about this. So I just I, I just thought I'd bring that up. All right. No, fair. Wow, we have gotten far away from our school. Apologies to our listeners who are receiving a higher percentage of nonsense than usual. Although, to be honest, we kind of gave Sam Kesten mom a school. Oh, that was your pre Yeah. Okay, you only have 75% left then. <laughs> you got to make a count. Well, that's not true because I actually want to give my school in 150%. So, okay, so, I feel let's, like, let's, so I feel like you have to give me more school percentage points back. Okay, so let's start start from scratch. Reset the tone meters. Sam, what is your school for today? So my school is multi-leveled, but because we're in Montreal... I wanted to start off by giving a huge goyach to the resistance that has taken the form of first a blockade the other day and now an ongoing camp at the foot of the Mercier Bridge, which uh, is yeah. south of the island in Ganawage, and the Mohawk resistance and solidarity with the protest that is happening in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I guess I wanted to start off by saying to everyone who was involved in the blockade last week and who's also still involved at the camp, uh, check them out online. We'll have links in the show notes where you can support the work that's going on there. For folks who know the 1990 history, the resistance that happened at Oka or so-called Oka, uh, the Mercier Bridge was also blockaded during that period as well. And it's also been kind of a site where Mohawk resistance has manifested in the last 20, 30 years. And there's been other uh, instances of solidarity happening. I, I've been seeing all over the place. Of, yeah. and, and, and I think it's just this thing that happens sometimes, though, where we get swept up by political narratives coming from the other side of the border. Yeah. And so, like, maybe we could just tell people of some struggles happening on this side of the border. Yeah. That people are really energized by what they're seeing, that they can provide some support for those struggles as well. Totally. And I mean, like, for folks who are listening who aren't in Quebec, Ontario region, obviously support the resistance that's happening where you are. But yeah, no, that makes perfect sense to try to emphasize the struggles that are happening around us. Yeah, I mean, um, here in uh, so-called Quebec, there's the Barrier Lake Land Defense Camp who are preventing Copper One from developing an opivit mine in the middle of their territory. And, and so they're looking for donations and supplies to get the camp through the winter right now. All right. And, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there's the uh, Unistoten camp set up by the Wet'suwet'en Land Defenders, uh, defending their territory from Enbridge and Chevron pipelines. Mm. Uh, also near so-called Prince Rupert, BC, there's the camp set up on La Cholula, aka uh, Lilu Island, preventing the construction of the Petronas LNG plant and pipeline. Uh, they need a lot of support as well right now. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that nations across the continent are on the forefront of resistance to these pipeline projects. And it's important to be supporting those initiatives that are happening close to you, basically. Yeah, and, and like even here in uh, Occupy Teotihuacan or Montreal, there is a, a line, what's called the Line 9 pipeline. Yeah. It actually spreads through a lot of territory. It goes through the territories of 18 separate indigenous communities. 
And there's been a lot of resistance to it. This month, have you been reading about that uh, Supreme Court case, Sam? That's this month? I have not. Um, it's the Chippewa of the Tame First Nation. They're sort of like crowdfunding their illegal challenge mm. to line... Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Line 9, it, it was uh, an Enbridge pipeline that was built in the 70s for natural gas. And after the tar sands were built, it was sort of redesigned very mildly to reverse direction and carry uh, tar sands bitumen through it. Anyway, there, there's a lot of resistance going on right now. And at the end of the month, one of the indigenous communities are bringing the government to court over this. Yeah. So, I mean, a massive square to all the resistance that's happening in all the different forms that it's happening in. Yeah, we'll, we'll have links in the show notes for, for all of these different struggles we've been mentioning, as well as a few others that you can support. Take stock of what's going on in your neighborhood and on the land that you're living on. Yeah, to, to understand that, you know, for those people who are listening who, who are settlers, to come at, at struggles like these from an understanding of whose territories you are currently on. And, and sort of building from there. Yeah. Yeah, read up and, and get involved in supporting forms of resistance that are happening where you're living. It feels like it's almost a double square. Like, both of us have used our square on that. It's and, true. And I kind of gave a pre-square to Kestenbaum. Uh, I got what you're saying. I'll make it quick. I have a, maybe a 15%. Uh, no, no, 25%. Um, uh, my square for this week, very quickly, <laughs> goes to this headline in the Jewish Daily Forward uh, which, if it was published this time last year, would have just read as a conspiracy theory. Uh, do you want to read this for us, Sam? Okay, sure. I am opening my eyes. Is a Jewish oligarch running a cyber back channel between Donald Trump and Russia? Question mark. Spoiler alert: The answer is no. <laughs> there is no. There is no cyber back channel between Donald Trump and Russia. There's also a picture of Netanyahu in the background. Yeah, he was, and Sharansky. Is that Sharansky? I feel like there is. This is just part of a series of similar headlines that I'm seeing in mainstream what? news outlets, where it's sort of like it's not just about the subject, but just in general. Now that I guess like far right stuff has gone mainstream with Trump, mm -hmm. that there's all these Jewish media sources that will be publishing these headlines that usually seem like they would be on like weird far-right newspapers. Okay, so the answer is no, a Jewish oligarch does not run a cyber back channel between Donald Trump and Russia. Or so the mainstream media would like us to believe. Yeah, that's true, eh? <laughs> One more episode in the books. Yeah, so if anyone asks, you don't have to look at the books. It's all taken care of. There's another episode there. Nothing to look at. We totally have everything under control. We certainly do. Everything's above board. Yeah, no question about that. Um, we are not operating at a deficit. That said, uh, we're actually thinking about making some t-shirts to have a tiny bit of spending money to maybe buy some microphones to make Trave Podcast sound a little bit better. Oh, yeah, that's true. Go to the Facebook page. There's actually a thread with a picture of David being inquisitive, I guess. If, if you have any suggestions of things you would like to see on a Trafe uh, t-shirt, just send us an email, trafepodcast at gmail.com, and uh, let us know. Oh, wow, David, I have another idea. Mm -hmm. I think we should ask people if they want a copy of the poster to put up on the street to put up in community centers to put up in their bedroom if they want yeah if you're at all interested in spreading the gospel that is trafe podcast uh we'll, we'll include both in the show notes and also on the website a link to the poster that we're currently postering around montreal and toronto so if you live outside of those places feel free to print it out and spread it around maybe bring it to your local jewish community center wherever you want to put it up if you're already putting up posters in whatever city you're living in and you can just add it to the kind of pile as you're putting up different posters for whatever event be it a punk show or in your uh, federation building if you want to print like 16 versions of them on a piece of paper cut them up and like put them in books in a library anyway i think this is very unlikely that anyone will do this 
first episode of Trade Podcast that you're listening to. Uh, welcome. I know it's late in the game. But, uh, Salut. Hello. <laughs> hello. Something that we usually do is we ask for anyone who has anything they'd like to say to Trafe listeners, just send us over a voice memo. Say who you are, where you are, and whatever you'd like uh, everybody to hear about. Just keep it to about 30 seconds to a minute. If you've had any funny interactions with the institutional Jewish community, critiques of the show, we'd love to air that too. Just email an audio file to trafepodcast at gmail.com and we'll throw it up in uh, one of our next episodes. All right, David, I think we're just asking for too much. Let's just get into the credits. Throw the tape. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CQT 90.3 FM, where we record this episode in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganahaga territory. Let it be known that there is now a second cross at the bottom of said mountain. See previous episode for details. Uh, thank you to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design, to Kira Page, our social media consultant. Thanks to C. Lavery for the poster design that we were talking about before. And thanks to Sax Syndrome and So Called for the music that you heard in this episode. If you have a spare moment, follow us on the social medias. It's at Trafe, usually T R E Y F. And there will be more episodes soon. <laughs> I was very ambitious with my leaning over.